I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Well, I'd like to welcome to the podcast a friend of mine who's been a guest before, Melissa Flynn. If you'd like to hear her entire story of her stepson and her family dealing with her stepson's addiction, it is episode two, The Tornado, on the podcast. You can check that out. I'm also joined today by Dave Janza, who is the program advisor for Face It Together. And today we're going to be talking about families dealing with a loved one who is suffering from addiction and how difficult it is, how hard it is to know what to do or the right thing to do next, and the toll it takes on people who have a loved one who is struggling with addiction. And I'd like to welcome you both to the podcast. Thank Thank you, Angela. Let's start with you, Melissa. Melissa, you've told Nicholas's story, and it is May, and May is a tough month. Yet you want to keep talking because you want to help other families. Tell me your motivation there. Well, I've shared this with you before that literally at Nicholas's funeral, I started talking to my pastor and saying, I've got to do something to help families. We've got to prevent people from dying from this and do whatever we can to stop this from happening to other families. Um, That's the motivation. I feel like People that have been through this before are can understand fully and completely how uh, devastating it is when you're dealing with a family member that has substance use issues. So I, I feel, unfortunately, uniquely qualified to help and feel called to help. And Dave, um, thank you so much for being with us today as well. You uh, encouraged Melissa to reach out to me, right? I did. I did. That's exactly what I did. She... You two seem to have a lot in common, and I guess my gut instinct was right. And Melissa reached out to me, and I said, great, I'd love your help So, in our mission here at Emily's Hope. Dave, tell me a little bit, uh, for people who don't know, Face It Together has gotten a lot of attention over the years, but I really want to focus on uh, on the family aspect and on dealing with someone you know, in your family who is struggling, who maybe doesn't want help, who maybe resents you, who's maybe angry at you. It's just, it takes such a toll on families. Can we, can we talk about that a little bit? It's, it's brutal. Uh, the people that come to see us that have someone in their life that's struggling with addiction are often uh, absolutely just battered to the core. That's not an uncommon uh, sight for us to see when we first um, meet somebody. But we really stumbled into uh, the work that we do at Face It Together. We started out as an organization focused on helping people with addiction. And we always knew that family members were highly involved, obviously, and needed their own help and guidance. But that's not what we started out to do. Uh, and it's only through my experience with my son and a series of events that I went through that just pl- ended up placing me uh, face-to-face with people like Melissa 
uh, and having gone through it and having found some tools that were very helpful for me, uh, we began to peer coach uh, what we call loved ones face to face, one on one. And, and we just instinctively knew that we were on to something, you might say. And so about 2014, 2015, we developed a full-blown program, and it now comprises of anywhere from a third to half of our clients. Dave, can you give us a little background on what happened with your son? Sure. So my son, uh, at age 12, uh, started exhibiting signs of uh, problematic behavior, let's say. He was, he was mm-hmm. small. He was teased. Um, and he, he went, started smoking marijuana and, and acting out. And we, we went through the whole, uh, gamut, you might say, uh, in his high school years, uh, he was, um, went to a couple of, uh, intervention like, uh, scenarios that the school system had set up. He, he ended up in juvenile court for a couple of offenses. And at 18, like many, he said, bye. He was gone. We had been knocking heads for a long time, and, and I was I was the tough love dad. I, I I often look back and I ask myself, where did I get that? Where did that come from? Why, why did I think that was the thing to do? Uh, but that's what I did, and I doubled down on it time and time again. And 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 over the course of most of his twenties, seven different treatments, uh, and in and out of our house, and and trips across the country and I mean this is familiar to a lot of people who have who have gone through this but it was it was in 2014 when I was a facilitator for smart recovery that smart recovery introduced uh, something for families and friends for loved ones and they came out with a handbook and it's science-based interactions for for people like me and I, I loved Smart Recovery and what they did for people with addictive behaviors. I gobbled up the book and started to have a new conversation with my son that was based in these uh, really, really good, uh, formative, helpful tools that helped me. And then as a result, I could see that it started helping me and my wife have a better relationship with my, with my son. And I'm happy to report that, that he survived and and is uh, we've had three grandchildren now, and he's he's doing great. And um, I'm just lucky. I'm a really really lucky guy. Yes, you are lucky. How old is he now? He's 32. 32. I tried the tough love stuff too. And I I think that we're told to do that. I think that we're told like you you have to set boundaries. You need to not let him get away with this. I mean, I did a lot of tough love with Emily, including at one point when she took off for days. You know, putting some of her putting most of her stuff on the front step because she was sort of living between my house and our dad's house and saying, you know, you can't do that here. And now I look back and I think was everything I did wrong. It was, they were really hard things to do. It's not like I enjoyed doing those things. It's not like I, it's so hard because I think we are, you thought tough love was the way to go. I thought tough love was the way to go. Although I will say later on in her life, I just try to always approach her from a standpoint of love and not anger, but it took me a while to get there. It is, it's just so frustrating. What, what, why not tough love? What is wrong with it? It, it, It's part of our culture. Our culture's answer to dealing with someone from addiction is, is really born uh, out of uh, non-science-based beliefs that things like 
like tough love and, and cautioning against being an enabler and things like codependence and letting people hit bottom. Those are things that are just, they're just baked in, but here's the big news. The fact of the matter is most of those things are, are not helpful and they're not based in science. And, and the, we need to, we need to work to get the word out that, uh, that there are better ways to, to interact with people that have addictive behaviors. So Melissa, you tried tough love at first too, right? And then you learned different ways. I was fully entrenched in tough love and, and very much believing that I was right um, until I went to face it together and started to learn some things and looking at things differently. It was very enlightening and also very humbling to realize that you're dead wrong. And you're so, you just firmly believe that if you keep doing what you're doing, which isn't working, that it's going to work someday, somehow, some way, and it wasn't. With Nicholas, what did you try uh, then after going to face it together that was different than what you had been doing? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, well, yes, I can. Um, well, I want to reference a conversation that I had with Dave. Um, I was complaining about how Nicholas was lying and manipulating and Dave said something to the effect of, yes, the symptoms and the behaviors related to addiction are maddening. And it was like this light bulb came on and I went, wow, it's a symptom. This isn't my kid who's morally bankrupt and this rotten, horrible person that I have to beat into him how to be the right way. This is a symptom of his behavior problem, disease, substance use disorder, whatever you want to call it. That was a turning point for me. And also, um, my husband had been going to see Dave for about a year prior to me going and had learned a lot and was teaching me. So I started to treat Nicholas like my kid again. And feeling instead of feeling like I had to lecture him all the time and fix him and being angry all the time, I was just more accepting and more loving and more understanding and more compassionate. And it changed everything. I credit Face It Together for the three amazing months that we had with Nicholas. It was three or more. It was around three months before he passed away. We would not have had that relationship and that healing and that forgiveness if it wasn't for Face It Together. Explain what you mean by that, the relationship. How did it change? What was different? Well, he came to live with us. He had been in jail and he came to live with us when he got out of jail. And to preface that a little bit, Prior to him getting out of jail, I was adamant that he was not going to come live with us ever again, because whenever he would come live with us, our household would be turned upside down. There was fighting, there was chaos, there was just total, it was just disruptive. But Randy kept, Randy kept going to face it together and kept visiting Nicholas and kept telling me he's changed, he's changed, he's changed. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, heard this a million times before. I was just not having it. But something changed in me after I started going to face it together. And also, I do believe that my faith and God intervened because I said, yeah, he can come live with us, which was very uncharacteristic of me. So he did come to live with us. And it was just a whole different family dynamic. I can't even describe it. Nicholas was at a point where he was ready to change. He was ready to do things differently. 
He was more himself, more than I've ever seen and I had ever seen in many, many years. He could come and go and it, w- it wasn't always like this suspicious, where have you been? What's going on? It was just more open and accepting. And we got to say all these words of forgiveness to each other and have these amazing conversations. It was a gift. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And then for whatever reason, I'm, I don't know that you will ever know the reasons, but he relapsed. We, this was one of the things that I didn't understand until now that relapse is so incredibly common. And that had we been maybe more aware of medically assisted treatment or been allowed to do that with him because he was on probation, I believe he would still be alive. We just yes. were trusting. We were trusting that he was being tested for drugs and that he wasn't using. And you just can't do that. You have to be more aware. People do need these uh, treatments have been proven to be effective. Medically assisted treatment like Suboxone um, have been proven to be effective treatments to for opioid addiction. And, and we don't, since we haven't treated it like the brain disease that it is, we expect people just to do better out of sheer willpower, which never works, really. Right. Rarely works. So, Dave, what is different about the approach that Melissa began using, that you began using? What's different about it? Can you give us some examples? Maybe even how it worked with your son. Sure. So, I remember getting about halfway through the Smart Family and Friends um, handbook and, and, and wanting to, just like most of my clients, most of my clients leave after the first session and they are just chomping at the bit to get out there and, and try some of these new strategies. And, and the reason that they're so anxious to do so, as was I, is because they're so inviting and, and they're, they're filled with kindness and compassion. And, and they make sense once you strip away a lot of, just like you and I and Melissa have all said, where did we get this? Or, you know, when you say, well, I, don't worry about where you got it. It doesn't work. Let's shelf it and try this. The first thing I did with my son is I apologized. I apologize for yelling at him. I apologize for, uh, you know, for being this, this tough, hard-nosed, uh, unmoving. I knew he had an addiction. I knew what he needed to do, as probably all of us do. And, and I was unwavering in my uh, attitude, and I wavered. And I said, I'm sorry. I will never yell at you again. And uh, we are turn- I am turning a corner in this uh, battle that we're both engaged in. Uh, th- that's where I started. And, and that's, that's probably just one key point. I, I hear it in Melissa's story. I see it in most of my clients. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of misunderstanding about disease, about the addiction, uh, about addiction. And so once you come to understand it and understand that things, we'll, we'll just kind of go down the, down the list. The first would be to to shelf tough love and replace it with compassion and understanding. The second would be to ask yourself if, if you feel that most help that you offer uh, someone with an addiction uh, makes you an enabler. Uh, no, we do not agree with that. Enabling in every other context means to help. Is there, are there things that you can do that, that, in the name of helping are not helpful, of course. But every, every situation needs to be teased out. And most of the time, I find that I give my clients permission to enable or help 
more. And that really takes a big monkey off their back. The other thing is codependence. A lot of people come in with, with a feeling of codependency, and that is really a very, very murky area that basically says to clients or people that have someone in their life with an addiction that you're sick. And we do not subscribe to that. I do not think that someone like Melissa who comes in, who's distraught and confused and conflicted and exhausted because of someone like Nicholas is necessarily sick and that she has a disorder that she needs to recover from. Uh, most of the feelings that she's having and most of our clients are having are simply because they're misdirected. And codependency is not based in science. And so I take that monkey off their back. Uh, and that's, that's just a couple. And there are just two or three other fundamental things that most people are saddled with uh, in today's world that are simply unhelpful. And uh, we just get them turned around and get them going in a, in a science-based um, curriculum, you might say, that, uh, that they really enjoy and really have great success with. Dave, because addicts are manipulative and because they will lie, and it's just so, it's such a painful place to be as a loved one, how do you find that balance? Because you can't just let somebody do whatever they want, whenever they want, to your detriment, right? I mean, we all have to have healthy boundaries. So how do you have that balance yeah, with tough. somebody who's addicted? How do you do that? The boundaries are in my opinion, the, the toughest area when it comes to this. And, and I think it's because for whatever reason, we have as a society, again, I just go back to these cultural norms that we're left with. And, and the cultural norms seem to uh, lead people to believe that there are relatively simple answers to a lot of extremely complex questions. So here's what I say about boundaries. Each situation is very, very, very unique and different. The situations that you had with your daughter and her friends and where she was going to live and, and, and your living arrangements at your house and, uh, and, and are there kids in the house? Are there not? They're all so unique that, that to just wrap it up and say you need strong boundaries is great and it's true, but we usually take them uh, a boundary issues one at a time and, and ask if it's fair to both parties and if it moves the ball in the right direction are we are we gaining anything by by putting up a boundary and really there's a better word that we like to use and it's called a fence and and a fence is is just a better way to describe something that separates two people but you can hopefully still maybe see across it and see through it and um, and work around it. And, and we also know that it needs to move and it needs to be nimble and it needs to change. Uh, and we work through those things one issue at a time. You know, Melissa, I know you uh, felt like there was a huge shift in Nicholas in those last three months were so much better than years prior to that. But yet you still lost him. And I have spoken to two families, one family last week who had been in contact with me about their son who was suffering from addiction and then another closer friend of mine just lost his son this week. So two overdoses uh, in two weeks of people that I know, the other children. And so sometimes I just feel like we talk about this, we look for answers, we look for solutions. And the thing we're all trying to avoid is the loss of that person. We're trying to 
get that loved one to be well again, to be the person, the, the kid that we knew, you know, at one point. But yet, so oftentimes, we have the same results. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking of so many things that I wish we would have known. I wish we could have done. I didn't know about, you know, the the chances of relapse. I was, I think a lot of society and a lot of people think that, well, they went to treatment or they've been sober, so now everything's fixed. Well, no, it's not. There's sometimes co-occurring mental illnesses. There are trauma-related incidents. There are many, many reasons why it's not just a genetic component. There's sometimes underlying issues that lead a person to try a substance in the first place, and then they get hooked because of addiction. Um, Relapse is so common, and especially when you're dealing with opioids, it's a very, very difficult substance to recover from. And so I think that we need to look at this differently and be smarter about it as a society and not look at relapse as a, as a failure. We need to look at it as if this person relapsed, how do we keep them alive? How do we keep them safe? You can't watch them 24-7, but I do believe in medically assisted treatment for, along with other treatment methods to prevent them from dying because it's depending upon how long they've used. Um, I think we were just not informed enough to think that Nicholas had been using on and off or over a several year period to think that, okay, he's magically cured and he's never going to have an instance where he relapses. We, we, I wish we could have known to protect him from that. I wish we could have known to, or had been able to do something that could have prevented his death. Dave? I, I was just talking about, you know, a couple more parents I know losing their children and, you know, the devastation that goes along with that. And most of us have tried everything you know, under the sun to save our children's lives. Because ultimately, as I said time and time again, I felt like I was standing in front of a freight train, you know, with my arms up and that train just ran me right over. Uh, Melissa's, you know, compared it to a tornado. Either way, it's a horrible place to be and a powerless place to be. No doubt about it. So here's what I would say to someone listening to this podcast who has someone in their life, whether it be a husband, uh, it doesn't matter, somebody in their life that, that they suspect or know full well is, has an addiction issue. You know, I, obviously, I, I love what we do at Face It Together. So I would, I would say reach out to us. I love smart recovery family and friends. I think it's a support group that has uh, science-based tools that, that really, really helps people. It's not well-known. So by listening to this and getting that word out, I think it's a, it's a great place to go. I think there are good therapists. I would tell people that addiction credentials usually in a therapist are a must because addiction is, is so special and so misunderstood, the, uh, not through their fault, but a lot of traditional therapists uh, simply don't have the answers for, for family members. Um, so I would say keep reaching out. This is what I find with most of our people that come. Uh, they're fighters. Parents are fighters, and they keep looking and asking and, and groping, even, if you will. Um, but, but those are some, those are some great tools. Um, the science behind what we do and what smart recovery does is, is, is called craft community reinforcement and family training. This is science 
that is proven to be effective in, in helping the Angelas and the Melissas and the Daves of the world feel better about themselves, number one, and, and change. You heard how Melissa changed and then Nicholas changed in response to her. And so what we are almost always able to do when we engage in a craft-like uh, approach to this is, is feel better about ourselves. And it's not about patting yourself on the back. It's about having interactions with the person that you're struggling with that, that you know and that you can trust makes sense. They don't always work uh, for the person that has the addiction. They don't always respond. But it sure gives you a great peace of mind to know that, that you're doing things that are, that are based in science. Kind of like parenting with love and logic. That was my, you know, that was my Bible when my kids were growing up. That parent, and it really worked. It really worked. But then to deal with an addiction like like I did with my daughters was something that, and the behavior that went along with it was like nothing. I was I was not prepared. I was very ill prepared for that. You were shooting in the dark. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, it's so sad. I mean, it, it it makes my spine tingle when I talk to uh, you and Melissa, and and I hear your stories and. Uh, and then I think of, again, how lucky I was that I just literally stumbled on something that changed the course. Because I, I know in my mind, had I not, had I not changed, uh, it was probably not going to look very good for an outcome for my son. But even with people taking maybe better steps, when you know better, you do better, right? And, and I think as Emily got older, I certainly did better, Um and, and dealing with it. And, and I had tried all the ways I knew best, you know, dragging her from counselor to counselor and, you know, trying to put her in a treatment program that she got kicked out of uh, for swearing at the counselor, which should never happen in my opinion. But um, all of these things, you're trying to invoke the law, all of the things I just, I was just grasping, you know, for the, for the right answer. And, but even, even if people find smart recovery, face it together, even if they follow, I mean, we always think if we just do the right thing, if we just follow the steps correctly, if we just will pass the test and then our loved one will be okay. But that's not always true. No, it's not. And if you look at it, you know, if you look at addiction uh, and someone being sick, uh, just like you would look at someone having a cancer or uh, diabetes or hypertension or any other disease. I mean, all the love and all the support and doing everything right and supporting them 1000%. Uh, sometimes uh, it, it's not enough. Uh, it's just not enough. Addiction is, is brutal. It's wicked. Um, as we all know, and, it, and it, it takes people's lives, but we can do more and we can do better. Uh, there, there are better ways to go about it than are commonly known. Melissa, what advice, I know you and I have talked about this before because we both lost our children, yet people come to us for advice. And I always say, man, if I had the right advice, I believe my daughter would still be alive. But uh, what advice, you know, maybe since Nicholas, I've learned a lot too since Emily has died. And I've learned a lot from other people like you and Dave and others. But what advice do you have for parents I have so much advice. Um, I think that it's important to talk about it and not hide in shame. There's way too much stigma in our society. And as parents, we get blamed and we blame ourselves. There's way too much of that. Um, educate yourself. I didn't have the time or the, even the brain power to educate myself. I was, I, you know, I have described it as a tornado. I felt like I was being twisted around in every direction you can think of and you're, you're frantic and you're not thinking straight. 
but somewhere in that storm, you've got to find some way to educate yourself as to what you're actually dealing with and don't rely on the misinformation that we learned somewhere because it's, it's not helpful. And I guess the other thing is, as I've learned through the um, Smart Friends and Family Training and also through a book called Beyond Addiction, put your oxygen mask on first. You have to help yourself first before you can help your loved one. And you need to learn how to, to deal with this. I mean, it is something that we have to learn how to handle. We have to learn how to handle it appropriately. Um, because if you don't know what you're doing, you can make things worse unintentionally. But like Dave said, we can't always fix it, but we can educate ourselves on how to handle it through a science-based approach that's more helpful. Dave, I think part of the problem is that we all, as a society, as parents, we feel so connected to our kids and they're a reflection of us. Uh, by having four children, I know that each of them are so different. And so I can't take 100% credit for, you know, the kid that's uh, getting straight A's or 100% the blame for the kid that's getting an F. I mean, those kinds of things. I mean, as parents, we think we're more in control and more powerful than what we are. And I think that becomes so hard for everybody because of the stigma that goes along with addiction. There used to be stigma around cancer, right? Like people used mm -hmm. to be embarrassed to say, I have cancer. Well, that changed. And if that's one thing that I could, that could be a result, a positive result from my daughter's death is to just erase the stigma because it keeps so many families and people suffering from substance use disorder themselves in shame. And I don't know how we get rid of that shame. I don't know what we need to do. I'm telling my friends who lost their son this week, this is not your, I mean, they're amazing people, wonderful people. You know, I'm telling them, this is not your fault. You did everything that you could do that you knew to do. It's not, but yet we continue to blame ourselves and we are afraid of the rest of the world judging us. The stigma around addiction is just, it's deep. And it runs right through the loved ones, too. You, you feel, you do, you feel shame. And what did I do wrong? And why is my kid this way? Uh, and, and we don't reach out most of the time. The great majority of loved ones isolate and take the problem on themselves or within a very close-knit group of people. And I've had a lot of loved ones who did reach out to friends and family. And frankly, they, they didn't receive a lot of warm and fuzzies that came back and that Boy, that just makes them, you know, dig deeper into their hole. You know, I, one story that's particularly poignant is a woman who told me that she shared with her best friend some of her most trying circumstances with her with her daughter, hoping for support. And I don't blame the friend. Again, it, the stigma is just so deep. But the friend's reply was, "I'm so glad I have good kids." Oh. <laughs> That's the worst thing you could say to somebody, right? I mean, oh, and oh she was goodness. just devastated, you know. Um, and, and so people just don't understand. You would never ever say anything like that to a good friend who had someone who was suffering from, from some other disease or some other malady, a mental disorder or whatever. You just wouldn't. But then oh. with, with addiction, we do. We equate people that have addiction with bad people. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of that that goes on. They they do surveys, and it's it still runs thick and deep. The correlation between uh, Emily and Nicholas and my son uh, are just put over here in a column that they're just bad. And do, so the you know what I think, Dave? 
I actually think, sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to get this point in very quickly. I think that our kids, I, I, I mean, I didn't, I don't know your son, but I know enough about Nicholas and I know, I knew Emily obviously uh, intimately. And I can tell you from every parent I've talked to, the kids that seem to fall into addiction, this disease, this disease of the brain are some of the most sensitive, kindest, have the biggest heart, have the most difficulty dealing with the things in the world that aren't right. And, and I really believe they are among some of the best people in the world that find themselves trapped. I couldn't agree with you more. The thing that floors me is, I, of course, I've been immersed in this just like everybody else, but not really paying attention to it until after Nicholas passed away. Any movie, any show, if they're trying to portray a bad guy, that bad guy is addicted to drugs. He's a drug dealer. He's addicted to drugs. That's the societal portrayal of a bad guy. And that's real prevalent. So it's it's coming to a different understanding. But D- Dave, you can go ahead and finish your thought now, too. I just wanted to get that point across. That yes, there is that stigma. People who use drugs are bad. And the behavior certainly is not good. That is not. But the people themselves are not bad. And, and you were making the point that once you strip away these preconceived notions about uh, addiction and, and the people that, that uh, have an addiction, you, you do find, uh, and you see it in the people that have recovered. You just see what is and always was there. These wonderful, talented, uh, really sensitive, smart people, individuals that almost seem to have a special gift and yeah. a special curse. <laughs> Yeah, I I agree. I, I agree 100%. I don't know how we change hearts and minds as a collective in the world. I think that's something that we need to do. And I agree. And I think, I think you see that, that our criminal justice system and the way that we treat people that have addictions in general are kind of tough love and harsh and not compassionate at all. The way we uh, lock them up and turn them into felons for the for the smallest, uh, you know, ingestion law I mean, in South Dakota, in my opinion. Uh, you know, someone who might be struggling and then slap them with a felony and put them in prison. This is not helping. This does not move us forward, and it does not help break down the stigma that we're all talking about here. In fact, it stigmatizes them. Yes, I, I agree 100% that we need to have a reform of our criminal justice system to change how we treat people who have an addiction, a disease of the brain, and to offer them. And in some cases, yes, maybe they do need to be removed from society because of the things their addiction is driving them to do. But to have treatment centers that are set up for people, maybe they would be sentenced to a treatment center, but not to prison with no treatment, which is something that happens quite frequently. Um, I know the federal system is getting a little better. They're doing more, but I don't think we're anywhere where we need to be. You were asking me earlier about some of the things that we do differently. And, and here's one that, that really surprises a lot of people. And it's so basic because uh, you talk about a difference in philosophy between what is basically practiced most of the time out there and what we tell our people to do 
uh, or suggest our people to do, and that is to reward positive behaviors. That is a basic, and you said you read a lot of children's books. That was in there, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yes, of course, yeah. <laughs> and I, did also, I also did a program yeah, but, for um, oppositional and defiant teenagers. I did a program like that, you know, not punishing too long because my daughter was going crazy and doing every, everything a teenager shouldn't do. Um, you know, so I, yeah, and reward and, and focus on the positive, focus on what they're doing right, that kind of thing. You bet. Those things work with addiction too. Uh, but we, we throw it all out the window for tough love and freaking out about being an enabler and worrying about being codependent, which you can't be because it's not based in science and and uh, letting them hit bottom. There's another classic. Oh, well, bottom is death or brain damage. I had a wise friend tell me that, you know, bottom is death or brain damage. So we yes. can't let him hit bottom. Can't let him hit bottom, but a lot of people are stuck on that. And, and so all of these things, but rewarding positive behaviors is awesome because it works. It works with people with addiction, just like it works with people with other issues, uh, be them children or husbands, wives. Uh, rewarding positive behavior is a classic. Um, positive communication, stop the negative and, and reinforce the positive. And then another thing that we notice and that we really uh, help our clients understand is most of the time, Angela, when you adopt a new tact, if you will, in dealing with the person in your life that's struggling, what you'll find, what we find is that their substance use reduces. And too often we're focused on, on the, the golden uh, egg, which is absolute abstinence, right? But when we reward less use, when we reward harm reduction, when we reward when things are moving in the right direction, they tend to continue to move in the right direction. And so we try to set our uh, clients up to understand that oftentimes this is a process and that it's going to take some time and that to look for the things that are going in the right direction and continue to push and, and prod and move things in that direction. And then we have a lot better chance from a better position to move to what we hope would be uh, full recovery. Is there any other thought you'd like to leave us with today? I want to leave people with hope and let them know that there is help available and that it's not, uh, especially for family members, it's not all hopeless and that they can, re they can get help and there is hope. And Dave, what would you like to leave people with today? Well, it's tough not to uh, echo Melissa. There, uh, there is hope. There is help. Don't stop trying. If you have someone in your life, um, consider reaching out to them with a new batch of compassion and a smile. Reward their positive behaviors. Invite them, perhaps, to start anew. And, and go about this in a different manner and that you haven't given up on them and, and see if you can't just move things in the right direction and then, and then build on that. Well, I want to thank you both for all the work you're doing to help families. And we are going to um, let our listeners know that we have all kinds of resources. We have links on this podcast, Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. That's paintingapathtorecovery.org. We have resources for families that Melissa helped us compile. So there's, there is help out there. Uh, it can be um, quite,
quite the journey. It's There's not always an easy answer. There are no easy fixes, but there is help and there is support. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Angela. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.